0: Tonight we have before us Matthew chapter 10, but really, as it is often the case when you study the Bible, it's good to take a look at the last few verses of the chapter before. So let's start tonight at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and you'll see exactly what I mean. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is looking at the multitudes that are following him. And as he sees the thousands of people, perhaps, that are gathered around to listen to him teach and to see him work wonderful miracles, he thinks about the many thousands of people that are needy but aren't there. It's as almost with every person that he sees, he thinks of a hundred others who are of great need but are not there at that time. And Jesus, as it were, he he understands at this moment that the job is much too large for him to do, not, not too large for him to do as God, But too large for him to do as God, who has taken the bodily form of man, who has added humanity to his deity, and therefore can only be in one place at one time. And so notice what he does here, beginning after the end of chapter 9, where he says, Pray that the Lord would send forth laborers for the harvest. Now look at chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas, Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Isn't this interesting? At the end of chapter 9, Jesus looks and sees the greatness of the need and what does he do? In response to this, he specially commissions these 12 men. Now, these men didn't start being Jesus' disciples at this time. They already were his disciples. But here he calls them together and he commissions them to go out into the region of Galilee and to do the work of bringing the kingdom of God to the needy people all around. Now, the main feature of this list that we have of disciples in front of us, we could say that the main feature of it is diversity. These men are very different. They have different kinds of names, different kinds of backgrounds. Some of them are brothers. Some of them are not. Some of them come from one area. Others come from another area. Some of it are suggested come from extreme radical political groups, such as when it says um, uh, the zealot here. uh, Where is it? Excuse me. In verse 3, where it talks about, no, excuse me, verse 4, Simon the Canaanite, who was also known in another gospel as Simon the Zealot. And the Zealot was presumably from a very radical political party that was very anti-Rome and even favored assassinations against Roman's officials. Put that together with a collaborator with Rome, such as Matthew the tax collector. You see, you have a very diverse group here. Now what they did have in common was that it seems that none of these men, as far as we know, were from privileged or backgrounds of high status. They weren't well-known men, they weren't highly educated men, and this is very much in the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Let me read that passage to you and tell you, uh, let let me ask you if this doesn't ring true in your ears as I read this passage. Well, really, when God used this collection of men in a great way to advance his kingdom, everybody would know that the glory went to God and not to these men. And that's why oftentimes God loves to use men and women who by many estimations might not seem to be qualified. They they might not seem to be the right people for the job. But yet when God uses them, he gets the glory. Now, notice that when Jesus sent them out, we read this in verse one, that he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Jesus did not only call the 12, that's right there in verse 1, right? When he had called his 12 disciples to him. He not only called them, he also gave them power to do what he had called them to do. Now the same principle holds true today. Whoever God calls, God equips. Now, the equipping may not be completely evident before the ministry begins, but it will be evident along the way. In other words, when Jesus said, Okay, guys, I've called you, and I'm giving you the power to do these things. How do you think they felt? I wouldn't be surprised if each one of them felt, What am I going to do when I actually come into the presence of a demon-possessed person, and Jesus isn't right there to help me? Do I really have the ability to handle this situation? And Jesus is saying, no, I am giving you the power to handle this situation. Well, what am I going to do when I'm actually called upon to pray for somebody that's sick and lay my hands upon them? And can I really believe God that he's going to do something miraculous? I'm frightened by that situation. Jesus said, I give you the power to do this. So please understand, God never calls us to do a ministry that he doesn't also empower us to do, but we might not feel empowered beforehand. Sometimes that power comes to us only by faith at the moment when we are called to perform that duty. And I think that this is how it was for the disciples when they were in the midst of that situation. Now, by the way, we should not neglect the words here, right? It's very radical in verse 1, where it says, Uh, Well, excuse me, we're going to get to that later on in verse 8. I'm sorry, it's it's a little bit later on. But he says he gives them the power to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So then he names the apostles here, the the disciples. Although I I got ahead of myself. Look at that there in verse 2. Now the names of the 12 apostles. Isn't that fascinating? This is the first and the only time in the Gospel of Matthew that these men are called apostles. Now, of course, the word is used otherwise, or in other occasions, many times in the New Testament, but this is the first and only time that Matthew calls these men apostles. But please notice, first they're disciples, right? That's in verse 1. Then they're apostles. First they're followers of Jesus, then they're apostles. And it's a very interesting thing. I, I sort of love this word in English, apostle. Because it doesn't translate the ancient Greek words. you know what the ancient Greek word is? Apostoli. It doesn't translate at all. It just takes that Greek word and moves it into the English language. If you were to translate this idea, if you were to translate the idea of the ancient Greek word apostoli, you would have the idea of an ambassador, an emissary, or perhaps a special messenger. It was more than a mere messenger. An apostle was a special messenger, sent with special authority from a governing authority, like a king. He was a king's special messenger. And that's exactly what these men were. So notice first, they were followers, then they were sent out as apostles. Because that's inherent in the idea of an apostle, right? You are not a king's special messenger unless you go out from the presence of the king to people whom you're supposed to bring the message to. An apostle is sent out. So first they followed Jesus and then he sent them out. First disciples and them apostles. And then he lists the 12 apostles. I find it very interesting. There's very interesting things about this list. First of all, Whenever you see the lists of the disciples of the apostles, you'll find a list here. You'll find a list, I believe, I'm doing this just from memory, in the Gospel of Mark. I think you'll find a list in the Gospel of Luke. And you'll also find a list in the Book of Acts. I think that those comprise the lists of the apostles for us. You'll find some common things among these different lists. First of all, you'll find Peter is always named first. Now, sometimes Protestants have a hard time with that. They say, well, we can't recognize Peter being first because then it'll be like Peter's the first pope, and it means then you're the, the the Roman Catholic Church is starting all up again. Listen, I want you to know that as a complete Protestant, I have no problem recognizing Peter's leadership among the apostles. None at all. He's Always listed first. He always is the most prominent. He's always in the leadership position among the apostles with a few special exceptions that we see. I'm thinking of one notable one in the book of Acts chapter 15. But besides that, Peter no doubt has a very clear prominence among the disciples and the apostles. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And in my mind, if you want to say that Peter was the first pope, I have no problem with that. This is where I have a problem with ever believing for a moment that there was a second pope. Because I don't have a problem recognizing Peter's leadership position among the 12 apostles. What I have a tremendous problem with and find no scriptural warrant for is the idea that Peter passed that authority on to another man. And then he passed it on to another man. And then he passed it on to another man all the way down to the modern day. I have no problem with Peter's, if you want to say, Peter's primacy that's sort of the theological term that they use to say that he was first among the disciples. Peter's primacy I have no problem with, but the idea of apostolic succession, the idea that Peter could pass that apostolic authority on to another person. I have to remember, there's no biblical idea for it whatsoever. So anyway, Peter's always listed first. Then you'll notice the disciples are always listed in pairs, twos, twos, twos. Look at it right here in our list. Uh, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. They're always listed in twos. Another fascinating thing is when you compare all of the lists, not only are they always in two, but if you break them up into groups of four, three groups of four, in every list... The first one mentioned, in other words, number one is the same, that's Peter. Number five is the same, that would be Philip. And number nine would be the same, and that would be James, the son of Alphaeus, I suppose. So you see, what I want you to see is it may very well be that Jesus sort of organized the disciples into groups of twos and into groups of fours. And the fourth, there was sort of a captain over the four. Peter uh, would be the other one. Um, Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and then, no, excuse me. Uh, I get that. Philip, Peter, Philip. I should just look at my own Bible here, shouldn't I? Peter, Philip, and then it would be uh, James, the son of, uh, of Levius. So you see, th- this is a very interesting sort of organization. We can't say so for sure, but it's interesting to see these patterns. Now, What I find especially interesting about these apostles is that these 12 have a very important place in God's plan of redemption, including a particular role in the future judgment. Later on in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to tell these disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's pretty impressive, right? These 12 men have a special role in the judgment to come. And they have a special role in the foundation of the church. The Bible says, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that God built the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Of course, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. But the rest of the foundation was made up of the apostles and prophets. And he means these apostles. And finally, in Revelation chapter 21... It says that the foundation of the new Jerusalem has 12 foundations, and on each foundation is written the one of the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Now, what's a fascinating debate that I am absolutely not going to get into tonight, you cannot draw me into this debate. Who is the 12th disciple or the 12th apostle? Because obviously Judas has disqualified himself, right? He's out. And then in Acts chapter 1, there was sort of a selection of a twelfth apostle to replace Judas, and they selected a guy named Matthias. But many people believe that Matthias's selection was illegitimate because it was done before the Holy Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost, and that actually God had another person in mind to be the twelfth disciple, the twelfth apostle, and they think that that perhaps was Paul. But I'm not even going to get into that debate. I just think it's an interesting debate. When you get to heaven, the first thing you want to do is go to the foundations <laughs> and see who the 12th foundation is named after. Okay, now let's look at their job, beginning here at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. Now, a- a- again, I-, I think we're a little insensitive to this reading this in English, but if we had this in the original Greek in front of us, we would say something like this. Well, of course he sent them out. They're apostles. What else do you do with apostles? Apostles are always sent out. Okay, so verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now Jesus was touring around the region of Galilee, teaching and preaching and helping needy people with miraculous power. We're told that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. But the sending of these 12 was a conscious expanding of that work, right? Jesus recognizes, I cannot be in more than one place at once, so I'm going to send forth these apostolic teams to go all over the region of Galilee to do their work. Now the work of Jesus was being done by many more people than simply Jesus himself. But he tells them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Now that's interesting. Please don't think that Jesus was prejudiced against the Gentiles, although there were some Jewish people in his day who were prejudiced against the Gentiles. But Jesus did not share that prejudice. No, really, it was more a matter of priority. There's a pattern presented to us in the scriptures for the preaching of the gospel in New Testament times. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now later, the gospel definitely would go to the Samaritans and the Gentiles under these same apostles, right? Peter was the one who blazed the trail to bring the, the, the gospel to the Samaritans and the Gentiles, but it had to begin with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's as if Jesus said, look, we don't have time to go everywhere, so in the time we have, let's focus on the region of Galilee and the lost sheep of the house of Israel there. God's intention was to reach the whole world, but to begin with Israel. And there was certainly enough work to do among the lost sheep of the house of Israel to keep the twelve busy until God directly commanded them to expand their ministry. Now, Who were the lost sheep of Israel? It's very interesting. In one sense, all the people of Israel were the lost sheep of Israel, right? Because what does it say in Isaiah chapter 53? All we like sheep have gone astray. There's a sense in which every one of us is a lost sheep. And I'll tell you something. There's two things you can say that are characteristic about a lost sheep. Number one, they are helpless. Number two, they can't find their way back. The shepherd has to go out and find them. And that's what these guys are doing. They're going out and bringing the kingdom to the lost sheep. So, in one sense, we're all lost sheep, but you should know that there's another sense. And in particular, in the book of Jeremiah, there's a prophecy about the lost sheep of Israel that connects the lost sheep of Israel to the unfaithful shepherds of Israel. And there's a sense in which Jesus said the lost sheep of Israel are those who have been neglected and abused and mistreated by the corrupt and the misguided spiritual leadership of the Jewish people in his own day. What was one of the important themes from Matthew chapter 9 that we saw the last time we were together? We saw this rising opposition against Jesus, right? Now, We're tempted to think of, well, big deal, Jesus couldn't be popular with everybody, right? I mean, why? Jesus isn't out there to win friends and influence people. I mean, so some people didn't like him, big deal. No, 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 you have to understand that when people didn't like Jesus, it was more than just a personal dislike of this man from the city of Nazareth. Because Jesus perfectly reflected the character and the heart and the words of his Father in heaven. If somebody didn't like Jesus, they didn't like God in heaven. Now, that's not what they said. They said, no, no, no. We are opposing you, Jesus, because we love God in heaven. No, that was utterly false. Those who opposed Jesus were bad shepherds for Israel and those neglected by their care could rightly be called the lost sheep of Israel. Should should we just take a look here back at verse 36 of chapter nine? Take a quick look. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now they had shepherds, The scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had them, but these men were not doing the job that they should do. And Jesus was moved with compassion, and so he said, I want you guys to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. That is what they were supposed to say. Now earlier we're told that Jesus's message this is in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 we were told that Jesus's message was this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Now the disciples brought much the same message that Jesus preached they simply brought it over a much broader area than Jesus could just by himself we're not specifically told in Matthew that the disciples preach repent, but we can assume that they did. They preach Jesus's same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It means it's as close to you as your hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's right here. You have to be ready for it. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. Now, as they preach this, I think it's fair for us to assume that they were to repeat many of the themes that they had found in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember all those weeks we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7? And we discussed as we went through those chapters how the Sermon on the Mount tells us what the kingdom of God is like and what the effect it has upon citizens of the kingdom. This is what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. I assume that they went out and they preached much of that same message. They told people what they should expect under the kingdom of God. And then they say, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. It's a pretty remarkable list. You should know that there's some manuscript dispute. Perhaps the Bible translation you have in front of us does not include the words, raise the dead. There's some dispute about those words. I believe that they're to be included in the original and that Jesus was actually saying, as you go out and do this ministry, you are going to be raising some dead people. But even if you were to leave that out, it's still a remarkable list, right? Is it any harder for God to raise the dead than to heal the sick? or to cleanse a leper, or to cast out a demon. With God, he can do all of that. We shouldn't say, well, I believe that Jesus could send them to heal the sick. I believe that he could send them to to cleanse the lepers. I believe that he could send them to cast out demons, but not raise the dead. That goes too far. Listen, if he could do one, he could do all of them. And listen, I think we have to acknowledge that it is possible for God to do such works today. Although I say that with such a note of caution. I do believe that it's possible for God today to raise somebody from the dead. But I believe as well that we should only believe and accept such reports if they're substantiated. You know, it's, it's very commonly said that somebody was raised from the dead, but there's no real proof given for it. Now, I believe it. Let me say, I want to believe it, but I want it to be true. I want it to be proven. Many, many years ago, I was uh, preaching in Bulgaria. Just got off the plane, got on a train, and I went to this gypsy church to go preach to a bunch of pretty wild Pentecostal gypsies who were there having a church service, and I was going to preach to them. And uh, boy, you know, it was a strange kind of situation, but it was great. I mean, these people loved Jesus, and I enjoyed preaching to them. And I remember at the end, I was going to share a story Uh, That happened to me just shortly before I got on the plane from California to go all the way to Bulgaria to to do some preaching work over there. And what had happened was uh, my wife and I were driving to our home in Simi Valley, California, and we were along this stretch of sort of country road, and we saw uh, police cars and ambulances, and we saw that somebody had been seriously injured in a car accident. And as we drove by it, we said, wow, Lord, we pray for that person. who's who's injured, or, or maybe worse, in this car accident. And, you know, our hearts were just touched, and we prayed for that person. Well, later on, we found out the next day that that person was a member of our church. And we went to go visit that person in the hospital. And I tell you, you know, you can just imagine how we felt. Here, this person was in intensive care, and we're just filled with concern for them. And we go and we visit them, and it was just one of those situations where you go to bring comfort to somebody else, and they end up comforting and encouraging you more than anything. I mean, it was just one of those remarkable incidents. And so I was relating this story from the, the, uh, the, 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 the thing. And, and as I related how I prayed for this woman in the hospital and how encouraging she was and all of this. And, and then people were just cheering. They were amazed. I, I couldn't believe the response from this crowd. It was just remarkable. And then I talked with the translator after the, uh, the uh, sermon. And, and she says, you know, I, I have to be honest with you. I go, she said, I, I, I kind of translated you not exactly accurate. She said, I, I kind of thought that what you were saying or what you were going to say was that, was that this woman was dead and you prayed for her and raised her from the dead. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I said, you, you've left all these people with the impression that this woman was dead and that I somehow laid hands on her, which wasn't the point of the story at all, that she was raised from the dead. And I'll never forget what she said in reply. She just laughed a little bit. and She said, oh, don't worry about it. In those gypsy churches, people faint every week in the services, and they always say that they're raised from the dead when they come back from the thing. So, Listen, I guess what I'm just trying to say is I do believe that God can and that God would raise people from the dead today. I don't doubt that but I just think we should not be too quick to believe a story that isn't substantiated. I mean, if somebody brings to me a story of somebody being raised from that, my automatic reaction is not, well, I don't believe it. It's like, boy, I want to believe that. I can't wait to see the evidence. Because I just think, honestly, that Christians look too foolish when they're too quick to believe things that later turn out to be proven not true. And so we believe it, but we just want to see that it's demonstrated. And by the way, if somebody really is raised from the dead, it shouldn't be too hard to prove, right? There should be some evidence for it. Okay, now, how are they supposed to go out in this work? Let's start again at verse 8. He says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey nor two tunics nor sandals nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out and when you go into a household greet it and if the household is worthy let your peace come upon it but if it is not worthy let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Notice, first of all, Jesus told them, freely you have received, freely give. Jesus charged his disciples nothing, and he expected them to give ministry unto other people without charge. By the way, this is the foundational principle for the commands that are going to follow. When Jesus says, don't take gold or silver or a money belt, or don't take a lot of things with you, travel as light as you can, the idea is you've received freely, and God will keep providing for you, therefore freely give to other people. Now, if you're really convinced that God is going to provide for your needs you feel very open in your heart to give to other people, right? When you believe that God will freely give to you, it's easy to have faith that you can give to other people. And so freely you've received, freely give. They should go out expecting that God would meet their needs, and they should not take an undue concern for their own needs. Uh, By the way, too, did you notice? That they should expect that God would normally meet their needs through the inspired hospitality of other people. He says, verse 11, whatever city or town you enter, inquire in it who's worthy and stay there till you go out. Uh, Look for uh, the home of somebody who has a good reputation. Don't be careful about staying among people of the wrong reputation, it could damage your ministry in that town. But you simply go there, inquire, and you stay there. Did you notice there in verse 11? Stay there till you go out. I like that. It's as if Jesus was telling, uh, when you find a place to stay, don't start fishing around for a nicer house to stay in, right? Be content where you're at. Stay where you're at. Trust that God has provided for you there. Now, you see, even though they were to go out, they were also to go out. And I love what Jesus says there in verse... uh, Oh, I'm looking at my Bible now. In verse... Where he says, and the worker is worthy of his food at the end of verse 10. For a worker is worthy of his food. You see, when they came among others, they were to be workers among them. They could work among them in spiritual ways, they could work among them in practical ways. I sort of imagine these disciples going forth, going into a city, preaching in the streets, receiving hospitality from whoever would receive, helping around the house, helping on the farm, helping with the work, doing spiritual work and practical work, but being workers who were worthy of their food. Don't get the wrong idea here. They didn't go into a town, lounge back upon a couch, ask people to come and bring them grapes to eat. And then when they felt like teaching a Bible study, they did that. No, the workers are worthy of their food. You see, they could expect their needs would be met through the people that they served, but they should never require their needs to be met as payment. The foundational principle was plainly, freely you've received, freely give. And so this is what they were supposed to do. And they were supposed to go and preach. And if there were cities that rejected them, notice what they were supposed to do. Verse 14, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Now, interesting, Jesus told them to only go to the lost sheep of Israel, right? Don't go to the Gentile cities. But this is how many pious Jews would react when they were leaving a gentile city when they left a gentile city they would when as soon as they were out of the city limits they would shake the dust off their garments and shake the dust off their feet because they didn't want any of that defiling gentile dust to go with them from the city into the country wherever they were going jesus was telling his disciples if they won't receive you you regard them as gentiles and if he could say it stronger he certainly did in verse 15 Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's pretty heavy judgment, isn't it? You could say that these people had a greater witness of Jesus Christ and his kingdom among them than even Sodom and Gomorrah did. Therefore, they were more guilty and more worthy of judgment. Now, as he's sending these disciples out, he adds continuous words to them telling them to be ready for the judgment that is to come here. Notice here, verse 16, these are hard words. It says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Boy, that's a pretty unattractive job offer, isn't it? Okay, here's your job. You're going to go out like a sheep among a bunch of wolves. Can you imagine that? I, I, I mean, sheep don't usually seek out wolves and go out among them. And then what do the sheep do among them? Don't think that the sheep went out there to fight the wolves, right? That, that wasn't going to be a very equal thing. No, Jesus simply was warning them that they would face persecution. They were going out without police protection. They were going out without military protection. And he was sending them out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You're going out there very vulnerably. Therefore, don't defend yourself with worldly forms of power. Instead, remain as harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. Wisdom would keep them from attracting trouble unnecessarily, or it would show them how to avoid trouble without compromise. Remaining harmless would keep them from giving in to the temptation of retaliation. Right? Right? When they're attacked, the instinct in our human flesh is to attack right back. No, remain harmless as doves. But then Jesus said something in verse 17 that I think is perhaps even more sobering. He said, but beware of men for they will deliver you up. They'll deliver you up. You're going to be pers- persecuted in councils and in synagogues. Did you see that in verse 17? Councils mean governmental authorities. Synagogues mean religious authorities. The religious authorities and the governmental authorities will be against you and will persecute you. You can expect opposition from both places. By the way, I think it's very interesting that when Jesus sent these guys forth, he never told them to go out and preach in the synagogues. Now, maybe they did, but that was not part of his commission to them. The idea is more that they would preach from house to house, from street to street, out in the marketplaces. No, the synagogues would be places where they would receive persecution, not places where they would preach. And then he says something really remarkable here in verse 18. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, you and I read that today, and we go, "Well, okay, yeah, that happened." You know, we know it happened in the life of Paul. We know it happened in the life of Peter, of John. Yes, they were brought before uh, kings and Gentile leaders and rulers. Yes, I understand that very well. I want you to understand how audacious this was for a Galilean carpenter from Nazareth to tell this to twelve guys who were following him around. And you know what, guys? You're going to go before kings and you're going to go before Gentile rulers and they're going to, you know, ask questions of you and put you on trial. They must have been confused. Jesus, I I thought you told us that we weren't going to go to the Gentiles. It's as if Jesus is anticipating later you will. Later you will go to the Gentiles and your message is going to be so powerful. Your message is going to make such an impact The gospel is going to make such a revolution in this world that you're going to have to answer for it before kings. You're going to have to answer for it in the capitals of the government. That's what impact this message is going to make. Now, verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus' disciples could have a perfect trust in God in that, that moment, knowing that he would speak through them even if they seemed to be unprepared. Why? Because it would be given to them in that hour just what they should speak. They could have the confidence that the Spirit of the Father would speak to them and through them at the necessary moment, even if they weren't prepared with an official statement. They could trust that God would do that. Now, please understand. This is not a justification, of poor preparation in teaching and preaching God's Word, right? Well, I don't have to prepare a Bible study. I'm just going to go and God will give me the word in that hour. Well, first of all, Jesus didn't say that this would happen in the church when you're teaching believers. He said it would happen when you stood before kings and rulers of Gentiles. It would happen in the midst of persecution and standing strong for Jesus in the midst of persecution. But secondly, I want you to notice that this was more so a promise of strength and guidance in that time. Now, it's true. But sometimes for whatever reason a pastor or preacher doesn't have the opportunity to prepare for a Bible study and he comes and he just says, well, Lord, just use whatever I can and he throws it out and God wonderfully anoints it. It's just a beautiful thing, powerful by the Spirit of God. Well, the last thing in the world that preacher should be thinking is, well, good, that means I don't have to prepare next week. No, no, no. God showed you a special grace for that moment. Don't take it lightly. Do your preparation for the next week as well. Verse 21 Jesus continues. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in this city flee to another for assuredly I say to you you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the son of man comes. Now Jesus knew that in some cases, the gospel would divide family members, and that some of the most bitter persecution that a believer would face would come from his own family. Matter of fact, he says, that even in some families, they would cause them to be put to death. Jesus told them, "Sometime the persecution that you suffer is going to result in you being put to death. I want you to know that Christians have been persecuted throughout the centuries, and most Christians who have endured persecution have not endured death. Most Christians who have endured persecution have endured economic persecution or social persecution or cultural persecution. But through the centuries, millions of people have given their lives in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Why? Notice what he says here. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's in verse 22. At times this has been true when entire cultures have hated the followers of Jesus. Doesn't that seem strange? Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? I just can't get it out of my mind. Think back to the kind of life, the kind of character described by people in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Who would hate such people? Who would look at the kind of people described in the Sermon on the Mount and say, ooh, those people are dangerous. Well, we better hate those people. But again, Even though that seems like a strange thing, it is the same paradox that inspired the world to condemn and to crucify the only sinless man who ever lived. Look, we have to be very honest here. It's very painful for us to admit it, but we must say that there are times when Christians, because of great unfaithfulness or or maybe a false profession of faith, that they have been hated... Not for Jesus' sake, but they've been hated for good reason. Sometimes Christians have been that wicked. Sometimes Christians have been that unfaithful in being followers of Jesus Christ. Yet no one who's filled with the presence of Jesus, and no one who lives like he did, could be hated for good reason. So Jesus says, verse 22, But he who endures to the end will be saved a commit to endure to the end, that's required for those who are going to survive the storms of persecution. And by the way, might I say that we who face little real persecution have very little understanding just how difficult it is to endure under it. It is not easy. But he says, notice, verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. You know, in this, Jesus taught his disciples that it was wrong for them to court or to attract martyrdom. They were not to run towards persecution or even remain if they had the chance for an honorable escape. If you're in a city and you know persecution is coming and you have the opportunity for an honorable escape, then take it. You can flee to another place if you are so free to do it with honor. And then comes verse 23 where he says, for assuredly, I, tell, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Let me just say, I find this to be one of the hardest verses to understand in the entire Gospel of Matthew. Could Jesus really mean that he would return to this earth in the way that we normally think of Jesus returning to this earth, in power and glory, before the disciples would make it through all the cities of Israel? If so, we would say Jesus was wrong in this prediction. It's better to see this as his coming in this particular passage. I don't think in other passages that are similar, but in this particular passage, it's his coming in judgment upon Judea, in A.D. 70, which did happen before the gospel came to every city in Israel. That's probably the best interpretation. It's probably the fulfillment of the day of judgment warned about in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. Look at that. Let's read it again. Verse 15. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. What Jesus was probably talking about was appearing or coming in the form of judgment against a disobedient Israel and Judea in that time of 70 AD. And you could say that the judgment poured out by God through the Roman armies upon Judea in AD 70 was worse than the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It certainly entailed worse suffering. It certainly involved more people you could say that it was worse. That's a heavy statement. So Jesus, please explain to us, why must your disciples expect persecution? Well, he'll tell you right here in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, And a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Simply put, the disciples should not expect to be treated any better than Jesus was treated. Isn't that strange that sometimes we might expect to be treated better than Jesus was? He's our master, he's our Lord, he's our teacher. We should expect to be treated the same or worse. And if they called Jesus himself Satan or Beelzebub how much worse should the disciples of Jesus expect Instead he says this and I love this in verse 25 excuse me in verse 24 It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master This is the goal of the disciple of Jesus of the servant of Jesus We simply want to be like our teacher and master And I love how Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says that we are conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is if Jesus comes into our life and God's transforming process says, I want to make you like my son. I want to make you like Jesus. And God does that transforming work in us. Now, the beautiful thing about that is he does not erase our personality as he does it, right? He doesn't make us clones. He doesn't make us robots. No, we keep our individuality. We keep our own personality, but it's wonderfully transformed after the pattern of Jesus Christ. This is the goal of a servant. This is the goal of a disciple. And you can just barely ask yourself, does this sound good to you? Does the idea of becoming more like Jesus sound good to you? If you look at Jesus and it really doesn't sound that attractive to you, I think you have to ask, where's your heart before God? I think to the person who really is transformed by his character, to the person who really is born again by the Spirit of God, there's something deep within us that says, yes, I want to be like Jesus. Yes, God, I want to be, as Paul said in Romans eight twenty nine, conformed to the image of his Son going on now, verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. There's a theme through these several verses. The theme is very simple. Don't fear. Yes, I know I told you I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. I know I told you that family members might turn against you. I know I told you that the great persecutions were going to come. I told you all this. But at the same time, do not be afraid. We should have truth, excuse me, we should have confidence that the truth indeed would prevail and that we could go out and preach it with boldness despite the danger of persecution. You know, if persecution or the threat of persecution makes us draw back from speaking and preaching God's word, then in some way you can say that Satan has won a victory. His threat of persecution may not succeed in harming us, but sometimes Satan doesn't want to harm you. He just wants to shut you up. He just wants you to stop being a witness. And if persecution can accomplish that, then in some way, even though maybe Satan has not injured your body, he has injured your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. You see, persecuted people need to remember something. What does he say? He says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. He says that in verse 26. Jesus promised his persecuted followers that the truth of their honorable sacrifice would be known. You know, the persecutors do their very best to hide it among the pages of history. I want you to think about the countless thousands, Tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Christians who have been persecuted and tortured and put to death through the centuries. And nobody knows their stories. Nobody. Their stories are silent to history. Their persecutors were powerful enough and clever enough to cover it all up. Jesus says it won't be covered up in eternity. That story will be told. That person and their honorable sacrifice will be known. God will reveal it all and justify his servants, and he will reveal the crime of those who thought that they had hidden their crime. The judgment of eternity gives us great confidence in God's ultimate justice. Let's face it. There are some people on this earth that seem to cheat justice, right? They do evil, sometimes horrible evil, and they're never made to answer for their crime on this earth. Let me tell you, they will answer for their crime. Eternity means that God will bring them to justice, if not on earth, then certainly in heaven. And Jesus goes on, therefore, don't hide it, right? Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. The, the, the message of Jesus is gloriously public. It isn't for a secret few and then to be hidden in a few ways. No, it isn't one message for the inner circle and another message for those on the outside. Preach it, make it public. But as you do it, verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. God is the one to fear. You know what, there is really no better cure for the fear of man. And sometimes we're very troubled by the fear of man, are we not? There is no better cure for the fear of man than the fear of God. (laughs) If you truly fear God, you're not going to fear man. And that's what Jesus said. Put your fear in the right place. Honor, reverence, be honorable before God and you will not give in to the fear of man. He says, therefore, do not fear you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, it's very easy for persecuted people to feel that God has forgotten them. It's very common. People who are persecuted, think of some poor man or woman locked away in a, in a prison somewhere for years upon years upon years and they feel so forgotten. You understand what Jesus is reminding us here? You're not forgotten. The same God who remembers every sparrow, the same God who remembers every hair on your head, that same God cares for you and he has not forgotten about you. Verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men him I will also confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny also before my Father who is in heaven. The the disciple has to confess Jesus publicly. He has to confess Jesus before men. Listen, if we can't be public about our commitment to Jesus, we cannot expect him to be public about his commitment to us. Can you imagine that? Oh Jesus, oh I oh I don't know him. And then getting to heaven. The Father says to the Son, "Well, who's this one?" And Jesus says, "Well, I I don't know him." What a horrible thought. A terrible thought. We need to remember that everyone Jesus called, he called publicly. And I would say that there is no such thing as a secret Christian, at least not in a permanent sense. Oh, because of weakness, because of frailty, But because of fear, you may be a secret Christian temporarily, but you need to come out of that place. Each individual Christian life should supply enough evidence, evidence that can be seen by the world that they are indeed Christians. It is to be feared that among many modern Christians, if you were to arrest them for the crime of being a follower of Jesus, and they put you in a court, and they put you on trial, and the prosecution had to prove that you were a follower of Jesus, and they went and they talked to all your associates. They talked to your friends, they talked to your neighbors, they talked to your family. Well, is this person a Christian? Well, I never heard him say anything about it. Do they read their Bible? I never saw him read the Bible. Or they talk about the things? I never heard them talk about the things of God. It it is to be feared that many modern Christians, if they were put on trial for the crime of following Jesus, there would not be enough evidence to convict them of that crime. I can just imagine the person saying, I I am a Christian. I really am. I am. There's no evidence of it, despite your own word. The, The people you've lived around for 10 years, nobody knows among them knows that you're a Christian. We question whether or not you really are. It's a fair question to ask. And then Jesus said something very radical here in verse 34. Let's look at it. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The message of Jesus. Again, if we want to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? The message of Jesus as you might reflect it in the Sermon on the Mount, is indeed a message of peace, right? Who could deny that? It's a message of peace. Yet since the message of Jesus calls the individual to a radical commitment to Jesus himself, it is a message of peace that divides between those who choose it and those who reject it. The division between these two choices explains how it was that Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Listen, Jesus' ethical teaching on how to live and what we should do, that is not so much what divides men. You know what divides men in this world? The person of Jesus. That's where the division is. Because Jesus makes it very radical. You saw it right there in verses 32 and 33. Did you look at those verses again? Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, are you some kind of crazy megalomaniac? <laughs> Jesus is saying, your eternal destiny depends on what you do with me. Could you imagine a mere man saying that? The holiest man, the most righteous man. Could you imagine a Mother Teresa or a Billy Graham or a Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon or whoever you want to pick from the pages of church history, them actually standing up and saying, what you do with me determines your eternal destiny. But that's what Jesus said. He said, I'm the dividing line. Because even though I brought a message that will bring peace to many lives, because the core of my message is, if you will accept or reject me, that becomes the dividing line. And he puts it very strongly there, right? Verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. The dividing line between those who accept Jesus and those who reject him will even run through families. The sword Jesus spoke of would sometimes cut through families. He puts it so strong that he says in verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In very strong terms, Jesus said that the disciple must love and follow Jesus supremely. Our devotion to Jesus must come above even our own household. Now we should expect that normally, following Jesus makes us better husbands, better fathers, better wives, better mothers, better sons, better daughters, and so forth, right? I mean, how many families, how many homes have been made happier because Jesus has come into that home? We should expect that that's normal. Yet we have to say that what Jesus said is true. There are times when the presence of Jesus divides rather than unifies. I want you to be aware of something. The greatest danger of idolatry does not come from bad things. The greatest danger of idolatry comes from good things. Are family relationships good things, gifts from God? Yes, they are. The love between a husband and a wife, the love between a parent and the child, a love between a brother and a sister. These family relations, they are beautiful things. They're good things. But idolatry can be the most dangerous when we are tempted to put a good thing in front of the greatest one, and that's Jesus Christ himself. You can say that the greatest danger to the best often comes from the second best. So what did Jesus say? And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You know, the disciple has to follow Jesus even to the place of taking his cross. This is the first mention of the cross in the Gospel of Matthew. Can you imagine how strange it must have sounded to the disciples? Here Jesus is talking about all these things, and all of a sudden he's talking about methods of execution. This is a thing, casual conversation. We we're coming, And I said, well, you know, you, you can't really be my friend unless you embrace the electric chair. You, you can't really be my follower unless you, you hug the hangman's noose. You know, wh- what are you talking about? And by the way, not only was the cross a form of ancient execution, it was a horrible form. Just to put it this way, without going into great detail, it was not polite to speak of crucifixion in company. In polite company, you didn't even mention such things. And yet Jesus right here says, following me means taking up a cross. You know what it meant to take up a cross? Why would anybody take up a cross? Because they needed some exercise? You know, I want to get a good fitness workout, so I'm going to grab a cross and carry it around? No! You... Took up a cross for one reason. You took a cross because you were a condemned criminal who was going to die upon that very cross that you took up. The, The ancient Roman cross, it didn't negotiate, it didn't compromise, it didn't make deals. There was no looking back when you took up your cross. And your only hope in taking up a cross was in resurrection life. You had no other hope. By the way, if you notice, it says, take up his cross his cross, he means your cross. You see, your cross isn't really your particular trial or trouble. Though sometimes we talk like that, right? My cross is my poor health. My cross is my troubled, you know, relationships. My cross is my boss at work, right? You've probably used that one before. Now, the cross really means one thing. It means death. Death to self and resurrection life to God. So the disciple lives in a paradox. What's the paradox? Paradox. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the thing. You want resurrection life, right? Yes, I want resurrection life. Yes, Lord, resurrection life. Okay, here's the only problem. There's one thing that's necessary before resurrection life. You have to die first. Well, Lord, can't I just go straight to resurrection life without the dying? No, it doesn't work that way. And so we see this working out in the process, in the event of salvation. If you want to say that, we are spiritually united with Jesus Christ in his death and then with his resurrection. All right, let's conclude here, verses 40 through 42, the end of the chapter. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall no means lose his reward. Jesus, you're saying that as your follower, I should expect persecution. I should expect to feel sometimes as if I was dying upon a cross. You tell me that's what I should expect as your disciple. Jesus, I, I, do you even value your disciples? Shouldn't you be treating them a little bit better? Just no, no, no. I treat my disciples well. Listen, anyone who receives you, one of my disciples, they're really receiving me. You are there in my place. And any good done to one of my disciples, Jesus says, it's as if that person did something good unto me. It's because the disciples of Jesus are their representatives, are his representatives. They're carrying on his ministry. And therefore, as he says, for the prophet or the righteous man or even one of his little ones, they receive a reward for benefiting or helping or supporting these ones. I love that picture Jesus closes the chapter with right a cup of cold water will not be forgotten you will get your reward what is more and i hope you understand what i mean by this what is more meaningless than giving somebody a cup of cold water they're going to be thirsty again in 10 minutes right how temporary how fleeting it's like well a lot of good that water did i mean it it, it helped them for a whole 15 minutes great He says, no, no, no. Even insignificant things, if they are done for my people acting in my name, I'm not going to forget it. That's how much I look out for my people. That's how I will bless the ones who bless them. They will by no means lose their reward. As we close this time here tonight in Matthew chapter 10, I think we have to be very honest and say, this is a hard chapter, right? But look, We were introduced into this theme back in chapter 9. When we saw the rejection rising against Jesus, we understood that if we're going to follow this man, we should expect to be rejected too. And it's many of these themes that Jesus works out. We have to say, Lord, that's okay. It's okay. I will accept being rejected by men, even if it means friends, even if it means family, even if it means people who have the power to hurt me. I will accept being rejected by them if I can just follow Jesus. You can't say that he didn't warn us. You can't say that Jesus just sprinkled sugar over everything and made it all taste sweet. He's very honest with us. I will give you great reward. I will bring great glory into your life, but there's a cost to it as well. We should thank Jesus for being so honest with us and to give us the ability to really fear God as we should so that we won't fear man. Let's pray to that effect right now. Lord, that is our prayer. When we read these things, Lord, we kind of come to the place of heart where we just say, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, how can we bear up under such potential rejection or or even death for your sake? But Lord, we believe that you love us enough to strengthen us in the moment and to be with us and to guide us and to teach us all along the way of this. Right now, Lord, even though I, I don't know to what extent anyone in this room tonight, they do face persecution, but Father, to whatever extent it is, we commit it unto you And we say that you would make the bonds, the ties between us and you stronger and stronger so that we could never be shaken from our trust and our faith in you. We want to be your disciples. and Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being so honest with us. You're treating us like real men and real women by being this honest with us, and we thank you for it. Give us strength now to walk after you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.